My name is Velma Vouloir, and you are listening to Controversy. Thanks for stopping by. It's me, Velma Vouloir, here with our ninth episode of Controversy, which is so exciting. I still can't believe that, you know, we're actually doing this and that you guys are listening. So number nine feels like a lovely milestone to me. How are we all? What's been happening? Hello to all our new listeners over the last few weeks. There are a lot of you, which is amazing. So welcome. Welcome to my happy place where I get to talk about whatever I want and you all have to suffer it and hopefully love it as well. Um, so like I just said, this is episode nine. So we're on a bit of a roll now. I feel like you're all able to start to get an idea as to what controversy is all about and a bit more of, you know, what I'm about as well. This show, it is a bit of a mixed bag. I am aware of that. It's part researched history, part conversation, part social commentary, Uh, part sexual expression and exploration and the topics can really come from or go anywhere and the glue that kind of sticks all these conversations together is the notion and appreciation of the erotic of sensuality and the many many ways it finds us and speaks to us and teaches us for me my interest in this subject matter doesn't just relate to my work in burlesque which It does anyway. It's hugely inspirational. And I think in art, we need to look beyond the medium we largely work in to find moments within all aspects of life that we can draw from and harness and explore. But the interest is in my existence as a person on the planet, sensuality and sexuality It's inherently biological, it's primal, it's sociological, and I just think it's so important to appreciate its diversity and its history, and I like to share it and talk about it. (laughs) It's really that simple. And also, hey, I know I'm no great professor. I definitely don't consider myself to be an academic. In fact, far from it. This podcast, I hope, is not too stuffy. I do want it to be conversational and fun and engaging for you all but for me too I always want your feedback I always always want to know what you liked what you didn't what you want more of please message me email me dm me on the controversy insta while you're listening to the show I live for when you all do that I do put a lot of work into bringing these episodes to you and it's nice to know you're out there listening and responding. So what am I saying? I'm saying, please validate my constant need for approval and improvement. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. (laughs) So my main piece of controversy news this week is about merch. We finally have our first merch for sale. Our stunning enamel pins have finally arrived. They are so damn cute. They are this beautiful quality soft enamel the image of the pins so cute it's a redesigned version of our smutty thumbnail also known as my boobs and my microphone which by the way was created and conceptualized with the help of two incredible women digi sketch closet and tara mckenzie illustration they're two wonderful independent creatives here in australia so thank you so much to those guys for helping me with that thumbnail but yes it's an amazing image the pins are beautiful get yourself one put it on your bag or your jacket just put them everywhere show them off make it a talking point at your social engagements (laughs) i don't know but you need to have one so they're 12 dollars each including including shipping. If you want one, do get in quick because I don't have heaps of them. And 
I'm not fancy yet. I don't have a Shopify or anything right now, but if you want one, just message me and we can sort it out via PayPal or whatnot. And I will also make sure I pop some social posts up there, um, which will have all the details about how you can get yourself a gorgeous little controversy pin. And just a little heads up, if you are a Patreon subscriber, you get either a 25%, 50%, or even a 100% discount on the enamel pins, depending on what tier you've signed up for as a little, little thank you and a little perk for being subscribed to the Patreon. So if you've been thinking about getting on the Patreon, now is a great time to do it. That's basically all my news. Let's get into this week's episode. This week is a bit of a big one. Um, not gonna lie, the research for this almost ended me. <laughs> it was a lot. There's a lot to unpack here and I got totally swallowed up by the research uh, last week. It's taken me an extra week to get this all together. Usually I end up writing about kind of 4,000 words of research for each episode. And this one came in at just a humble 9,000 words of research. So yeah, it's been a lot trying to compact it down. So what are we talking about this week? We are talking about arguably one of the most eroticized historical figures of all time. And we're also talking about one of the most infamous rulers in history, period. And I think I think that's a fair statement to make. So we are diving into the history and the highly salacious reputation of Egyptian pharaoh Cleopatra VII. We all know her, we know of her, and there's a lot out there about her. So there were actually a lot of Cleopatras, but Cleopatra VII is kind of seen as the Cleopatra. She is the beautiful, the notorious, the seductive, the lascivious queen of Egypt and lover and mistress to Julius Caesar and lover and wife to Mark Antony. I do want to be clear, this episode isn't just going to be a regurgitation of her life. I'm not going to do that. There's a lot of information out there uh, that is going to explore her life and history much more succinctly than I ever could. I am going to briefly give you a kind of quick-ish version of her bio just to catch up anyone who maybe isn't familiar with her story. But what I want to focus on today is, of course, the juicy stuff. I want to look at Cleopatra as a feminine archetype, as a sex symbol. I want to look at our perception of her as a character, as a ruler, and as a woman. I want to get into some of those very raunchy anecdotes about her that you may or may not have heard of and look at where they came from. You know, what's the basis for these? And also, why are we so connected and enthralled by the sexual antics of a woman who lived more than 2,000 years ago? I want to look at what's fact, what's fiction, and how has she influenced us in this modern world today. Sources for this episode, I found some excellent stuff on Reddit. Ah, bless you, Reddit. So thank you to the user Cleopatra underscore Philopator. Thank you for your amazing work. I also got information from history.com, makinghistory.com, cura.com, biography.com, vanityfair.com, duxters.com, the fashion history timeline research project conducted by Lord Font, and the dissertation by Shamara Moore titled A Queen's Reputation, a Feminist Analysis of the Cultural Appropriations of Cleopatra. All right, buckle up. So the first thing I want you to do is take a moment to picture Cleopatra in your mind. What does she look like to you? What ethnicity is she to you? What is she wearing? Is she clothed? Is she naked? How is her hair styled? Where is she? Is she standing? Is she laying down? How old is she? I want you to take a moment and just get that picture in your head. I'll give you a second. We've got that picture in our mind, hopefully. So now, unless you're a scholar in Roman or Egyptian history, 
chances are that image you have in your mind right now, it comes from pop culture somewhere. I'm going to take a chance and say most of you are picturing Cleopatra as Elizabeth Taylor in the film from the 60s. That's just a guess. It's a it's a pretty confident guess. So if you're not, if you're if you're not thinking of Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra, I reckon I can almost guarantee that you are thinking of something from a piece of art or a film or a video game or a porno you watched or some Halloween costume your friend wore, maybe, probably. Am I right? If I'm wrong, message me and tell me and I'll totally eat my words, but always, always happy to learn. My point is chances are that you probably don't have an image of Cleopatra that has come from a statue in antiquity or from a coin from ancient Greece. That's my point. For me, my first introduction to Cleopatra was when I was 10 years old and at the library. My mom always took me to the library. Um, My mother is a total bibliophile and we were always, always at the library. Um, And you know what? I've just legit realized that this is where I was introduced to so many of the filthy things I love. It was my mom leaving me to my own devices at the fucking library. I would pour over sections on Everything, sex, magic, anatomy, fine art, nude photography, Mills and Boone. This is where I found it all. It was the library. So what a little legend I was. Thanks, mom. (laughs) It's just hit me. It was the library. Blame it on my mom. Blame it on the library. Guys, sign up to your local library. That's where all the good stuff is. Cleopatra at the library. So I was 10 years old and I saw this thick, hefty novel sitting on a shelf. And on it was a painting of a beautiful woman, bare-breasted, with gold in her hair, and she was being attended to by other women. And this book I'm talking about is a novel by Colin Falconer called When We Were Gods, a novel of Cleopatra. It was published in 2000, and Colin Falconer has written many books. He's a very well-loved historical fiction writer. So, of course, being the inquisitive little 10-year-old, I was already besotted by boobs and beautiful women. It was two for two for me. Um, (laughs) So I went over to it and I asked my mum if I could borrow it. And she said yes. And I took it home and I think I got through about half of it, but it was too much. It was too complex a novel for my little 10 year old brain. But all in all, it gave me this really prosaic, wonderfully rich description of Cleopatra, of this historical figure. And especially at the time, as a kid, I had no comprehension of the difference between, uh, you know, historical fiction and history. So I really believed every single word that was written. You know, to me, this was straight history more so than historical fiction. And I did actually end up re-borrowing the book when I was in my 20s and finished it cover to cover so quickly. It's super sexy. It's super well-written. If you like historical fiction, if you like history that's been glamorized and sort of sexed up a little bit, you will love this book. Check that out if you're interested. It's called When We Were Gods, a novel of Cleopatra by Colin Falconer. Okay, that's my little personal anecdote. So we've got some kind of visual of Cleopatra. Now I want you to think of a few words to kind of sum her up, to describe her. What do you know about her? Look at me being all bossy teacher. What is this? So bossy. Why am I being so demanding today? I'm not usually like this. So anyway, do it. Do what I say. (laughs) So for me, I would say queen, lover, seductress, excess, Homewrecker, definitely Homewrecker. Uh, I think those would probably be the main ones for me. Look, there are so, so many kind of blanket statements about Cleopatra and so many very obscene rumors about her. And everyone loves a juicy rumor. So let's start by talking about some of those, shall we? So Cleopatra, she's said to have been a complete nymphomaniac 
never sexually satisfied ever. She's said to have once slept with more than 100 men in an evening and that she had an open policy that any man could bed her in exchange that they be put to death immediately afterwards. It's said that she was a master at performing oral sex and was given the nickname the Golden Mouth and that she constantly held and participated in mass orgies in her place of residence in Alexandria. It's also been said that she had sexual relationships with both her father and two younger brothers. And my personal favorite is that Cleopatra is considered to be the inventor and pioneer of the first ever vibrator. And for those of you who saw my posts last week about struggling with the research and about bees being involved in this week's episode, this right here is where the bees come into play. So the rumor here is that Cleopatra, so unsatisfied from her long stream of lovers, took her pleasure-seeking quite literally into her own hands and created an instrument using a hollowed-out gourd, which is like a small squash pumpkin-type vegetable, and she filled it with live bees. That's right. She put some sort of lid on it and then used it as a sex toy with the bees obviously creating some sort of rumbling vibration. It's such a good one. Like that is such a good story. I mean, get it sis, basically is what we're trying to say. If that works for you, you do you. Would you want those bees to escape inside you mid masturbation session? Absolutely not. But as far as 2000 year old sexual ingenuity goes, I mean, I'm impressed. Those are just a few of the rumors we have of Cleopatra that contribute to our image of her as this highly sexualized, erotic, passionate, hedonistic ruler. And before we look at these ideas in more detail, I want to give you a quick summary, a kind of basic rundown of her life as the ruler of Egypt, because you may not know. I won't go into it in super depth and detail because it will take hours, but this is kind of the basic version for you. If you are a history nerd and you love ancient Rome and ancient Egypt and you know this story very well, you may want to skip forward (laughs) because I'm probably going to destroy it and do a terrible job of it. But for those that just want a quick rundown that maybe don't really know, I'll give you the kind of the cheat sheet version of this history. So Cleopatra was born a princess of Egypt in 69 BC. And when you say Cleopatra in modern times, you know, there's only that one kind of queen of the Nile that most people think of. But Cleopatra was actually the seventh woman in the Ptolemaic dynasty to bear that name. She's officially known as Cleopatra VII Philopator. And the name Cleopatra in Greek means she who comes from glorious father. And that's, of course, in reference to her royal male pharaoh lineage. It's also important to realize where in the scheme of ancient Egypt her lifetime falls. Most of us think of Cleopatra, you know, standing in all her glory with the the pyramids of Giza behind her. And yes, we are talking about 2000 years ago, but considering the era of the pharaohs was so, so long. The first dynasty of Egypt began in 3100 BC, so over 5,000 years ago. The Great Pyramids at Giza were constructed between uh, 2550 to 2490 BC. So this means that Cleopatra actually lived closer to the time of the 1969 moon landing than she did to the construction of the pyramids. Yeah, she's later, way later. She's actually the end of the Egyptian pharaohs. So her father was Pharaoh Ptolemy XII. And the general identification of her mother, it's actually not proven, but it's likely that her mother was Cleopatra V, who was the half-sister 
of Ptolemy XII, her father. So a little bit of incest going on there. Cleopatra's family had ruled Egypt for 300 years by the time that she was born. They were the Ptolemy dynasty that had been established by the very famous Greek ruler Alexander the Great. Even though they ruled Egypt, they were actually, they were Greek. They were of Greek Macedonian descent. And despite being Egyptian, Cleopatra grew up speaking, reading, and writing in Greek. Cleopatra was very smart and very cunning growing up. She was highly educated. She had access to the world's greatest scholars. And of course, for all you bibliophile book loving people out there, she had access to the ancient library of Alexandria, which is something I daydream about all of the time. Google that if you're not sure what it is. It's uh, the dream. It's understood that she was actually the first in her lineage to prioritize learning the Egyptian language and that she spoke as many as nine different languages during her lifetime. She's a smart cookie. She was her father's favorite child and she learned a lot about how the country was ruled from him. When Cleopatra was 18 years old, her father died and he left the throne to both her and her younger brother brother, Ptolemy XIII. So Cleopatra and her then 10-year-old brother were married and were to rule Egypt as co-rulers. Marrying your 10-year-old brother, kind of weird. So for the Ptolemaic pharaohs, and let's be honest, a lot of royal bloodlines throughout history, incest was rife. It was everywhere. Brothers and sisters and cousins were often exclusively married within their own gene pool as a way to keep the purity and divine righteousness of the bloodline and ultimately the divine right to rule. Cleopatra did not want to be told what to do by her little brother. She was determined to become the sole sovereign of Egypt and she tried her best to keep him as her subordinate but once her brother got a little bit older with the help of his advisors he actually overthrew Cleopatra and drove her from her home in Alexandria and she fled to Syria. She gathered troops and a year later she returned with a mercenary army and she set up camp just outside the capital. So meanwhile into Egypt walks our favorite big dick swinging Julius Caesar and he was chasing down and trying to defeat a military rival Pompeii um, and this was in the summer of 48 BC and it's during this time that he found himself drawn into the Egyptian family feud when he set up camp at the palace of Alexandria which sorry that was the capital of Egypt at the time Alexandria I don't know if I mentioned that yet so for decades Egypt had been a really subservient ally to Rome they had great trade agreements with agriculture, both Rome and Egypt benefited from their relationship economically, and it was quite a stable relationship, probably with Rome having the upper hand in terms of size and power. But because Egypt had control over the Nile, which was so prosperous for trade and economics, they really needed each other and used each other for mutual benefit. So my point is, is that no one really batted an eyelid when Caesar turned up and was like, hey, we're all good here. I'm going to stay in your fancy palace for a while. Okay, thank you. So Caesar took up residence at the palace and summoned the warring siblings for a peace conference to which he kind of planned to mediate. But Ptolemy XIII forces barred the return of Cleopatra to Alexandria, which pissed Caesar off. And aware that Caesar's diplomatic intervention could help her regain the throne, Cleopatra hatched a scheme to sneak herself into the palace for an audience with Caesar. She persuaded her servant Apollodorus to wrap her up in a carpet which he then presented to the 52 year old Caesar in his private chambers and begged for his help. This is one of those stories that it has been described so many times as this kind of genius sexual power play by Cleopatra. I mean it's a total Mills and Boone fantasy that writes itself really. Exiled Egyptian queen sneaks into the bedroom of powerful Roman dictator in the middle of the night begging to help restore her to power. Um, yeah, you can just hear the 70s porno guitar starting to play in the background. It's magical. 
However she convinced him, she did a great job because Caesar agreed to help and this is where their affair began. She was only 21 at the time and he was 52. So Caesar defeated Ptolemy's army at the Battle of the Nile and Ptolemy likely drowned in the Nile River while trying to escape. Cleopatra then took back power and Caesar remained in Egypt with Cleopatra for a time and around 47 BC, Cleopatra gave birth to a son, Ptolemy Caesar. He was believed to be Caesar's child and was accepted to be Caesar's child and was known by the Egyptian people as Caesarian or Little Caesar. So important to know, Caesar was already married and Rome was generally furious that Caesar had kind of run off with this sexy, seductive Egyptian side piece, basically. Egyptian custom also decreed that Cleopatra marry her remaining brother, Ptolemy the 14th, who was 13 at the time. She's had to marry both her brothers and we have this weird kind of married to my brother, but also living with the guy I'm sleeping with scenario going on. In 44 BC, Caesar was famously assassinated in Rome and Cleopatra was actually in Rome at the time of Caesar's assassination. And obviously this was a huge deal for her. She's lost her ally. She's lost her safety net. She goes back to Egypt and this is where she kind of became a little more cutthroat in her ruling. She was so literally cutthroat, in fact, that she had her brother, Ptolemy the 14th, killed to prevent any challenges to her son Caesarian succession. And then to further solidify her grip on the throne, she also murdered her sister Arsinoe as well. We've got incest, we've got murder, we've got affairs, we've got all sorts of things going on here. So such ruthlessness, it was not only a common feature of Egyptian dynastic politics in Cleopatra's day, it was actually necessary to ensure her own survival and that of her son and lineage. So with all of these domestic threats removed, Cleopatra set about the business of ruling Egypt. It was the richest nation in the Mediterranean world, and it was also the last to remain independent of Rome. Cleopatra successfully built up the Egyptian economy. She established highly commended trade agreements with surrounding nations. She was a really popular ruler among the people of Egypt, both because she embraced the Egyptian culture as a Greek queen, and also because the country was prosperous during her rule. So three years after Caesar's death, control of Rome is being sought after by three men, Letipus, Mark Antony, who was a general and close ally of Caesar, and Octavian. Octavian was the great nephew and legal heir of Julius Caesar. And if we're on Cleopatra's side of history, Octavian would become the bad guy. All three of these guys began to ask for Egypt's help in their efforts to become the emperor of all Rome. And Cleopatra, who has big dreams of Caesarian, her son, becoming Becoming the leader of Rome one day, decides to side herself with Mark Antony. So in 41 BC, Antony sent for Cleopatra while he was staying in the magnificent city of Tarsus near the coast of what is now Turkey. Cleopatra was very aware of Antony's love of excess and spectacle and also of Rome's interest in her wealth and in her country's wealth. So Cleopatra orchestrated an entrance into Tarsus designed to awe Antony and his cohorts. According to Stacey Schiff's Cleopatra, A Life, she sailed into the city in an explosion of color underneath billowing purple sails. It reads, she reclined beneath a gold spangled canopy dressed as Venus in a painting while beautiful young boys like painted cupids stood at her sides and fanned her. Her fairest maids were likewise dressed as sea nymphs and graces, some steering at the rudder, some working at the ropes. Wondrous odors from countless incense offerings diffused themselves along the riverbanks. So the pageantry worked. The moment he saw her, Antony lost his head to her like a young man, the Greek historian Apian wrote. But Cleopatra was not done. She began throwing extravagant parties and dinners for the Romans, flaunting her riches by giving away all the furniture, jewels, and hangings from the soirees. She drank and wrestled with Antony, who was ambitious to surpass her in splendor and elegance. So he then threw his own parties that, you know, never quite lived up to hers. And so this new affair, the Roman public went 
not so on it. They already disliked Cleopatra because of her relationship with Julius Caesar. And now she's back again, luring and beguiling one of Rome's most loved men again. She was seen as sort of the antithesis of the typical Roman woman at the time who was subservient, quiet, maternal, pious. You know, Cleopatra was independent. She was hedonistic. She was driven and she wasn't going to let anyone stop her. It is widely considered that the attraction and love between Cleopatra and Mark Antony was genuine. It was a love story for the ages, but it cannot be denied that it was also politically savvy and they both definitely mutually benefited from their relationship with one another. So Antony needed Cleopatra to fund his military endeavors in the East and Cleopatra needed him for protection and to expand her power and assert the rights of her son Caesarian. They are now considered to be one of history's greatest love stories. In 40 BC, Cleopatra gave birth to twins, Alexander Helios, meaning sun, and Cleopatra Selene, meaning moon. They also had a third child, another son, Ptolemy Philadelphus, in 36 BC, and together they formed a military alliance against Octavian. So in 30 BC, these two sides come to a head at the naval battle of Actium. It's a really monumental battle. Chances are maybe you studied it in history or at school. Like I said, I am no scholar and I'm giving you probably the worst retelling of all of this, but long story short, Octavian wins and Antony and Cleopatra have to retreat. What happens next? It's so, so infamous. Cleopatra knows she's about to be captured by Octavian and if he gets a hold of her, he will destroy her. He will drag her through the streets of Rome. He will make her a slave. He will torture her. So she tries to hide and she sends a decoy message to Antony that she's committed suicide, which she hopes will be seen by Octavian soldiers. And then she also sends another one detailing their escape plan that she hopes only Antony will get. Antony receives the suicide note first and he's so heartbroken he stabs himself in the stomach and mortally wounds himself. He's taken dying and bleeding to Cleopatra's hiding place where he dies by her side. And Cleopatra is soon after captured and not long after she infamously takes her life and last remaining power into her own hands by also committing suicide, either by poisoning herself or from the venom of a snake that she allows to bite her breast. Mark Antony and Cleopatra were buried side by side, but the location of their tombs has never been found. Shortly after her death, her eldest son Caesarian was brutally murdered by Octavian when he was just seven years old. Her children fathered by Mark Antony were never allowed to claim any control control over Egypt or Rome. Octavian changed his name to Augustus Caesar and would go on to be considered one of the most effective and successful rulers of all time. In 8 BC, Augustus had the Roman month of Sextilius renamed after himself, just as his great uncle and predecessor Julius Caesar had done with the month July. So everyone thought that Augustus would choose September as the month to rename after himself as that was his birth month, but instead he chose the eighth month because this was the month he defeated Cleopatra and he was allegedly so pissed off that she had committed suicide and thus taken away his glory and his chance of enslaving her and ridiculing her. This was kind of his way of saying fuck you for all eternity basically. This was his revenge. Her death brought an end to the Ptolemy dynasty and the Egyptian empire. She was the last pharaoh of Egypt and was 39 at the time of her death. So that's my very rough bio for Cleopatra. There's a lot of detail I've left out, so please feel free to find out more about her. But now that you have that basic information, I want to get into perceptions of her throughout history. So why exactly do we have this image of Cleopatra as being a bit of a sex-crazed, power-hungry, gold-digging hussy, when if we take the salaciousness out of it and focus on the history, we actually have an incredible, successful pharaoh who was educated, accomplished, She was loved by her people. She made huge strides in the economy and trade industries. She thwarted Emonies. Emonies. Guys. She thwarted Emonies. No, she thwarted enemies. (laughs) What an idiot. And made political alliances 
with two of the most accomplished political figures in history. And she was a mother and she reigned as a sole sovereign for almost her entire life. She is an absolute badass. So where did these rumors about her come from? And why are we still so obsessed with Cleopatra literally thousands of years later? Well, I'm glad you asked, um, because I'm going to tell you right now. To begin with, the only solid biographical accounts of Cleopatra that we have, they're Roman. There is no getting around that. This is history. We have what we have. And although we can look at archaeological evidence from Egypt to assess her reign, we're pretty much stuck with a handful of Roman sources when it comes to assessing her personal life. And you may or may not be aware of this, but Roman literature loves to make shit up for the sake of propaganda. You know, these days we read through it and because it's Latin and it's written by Plutarch and Cassius, we go, oh, how, you know, academic, how uppity. But let me tell you, it is not. It's straight up Bridgerton style Lady Whistledon bullshit, okay? (laughs) They were gossip hungry and absolutely ate up tabloid style stories and literature. So we need to remember that Cleopatra was hated by the Romans. She was a political threat to the Romans and eventually she was defeated by the Romans and Octavian or Emperor Augustus, as he would later be known, wanted to make sure that everyone knew that she deserved to die, that he was the rightful ruler and no one was allowed to have a different opinion of this whore who used sexual prowess and witchcraft to seduce two of Rome's most loved heroes. So right from the get-go, we're getting a lot of bias and we're essentially getting a smear campaign. However, it's still important to note that while this propaganda alluded to her sexual prowess, there's very little actually said in any of these texts about Cleopatra's actual sexual deviancy. In fact, our texts try not to even mention Cleopatra by name. Plutarch presents her as fabulously wealthy and what's more ostentatious than being overtly wealthy. Plutarch describes Cleopatra as having a taste for the extravagant, filling the city with banquets while she and Antony spent time drinking and gambling. Plutarch also notes that Cleopatra was very charming and very educated, both in books and flattery, and that she had something of a playful streak. She, says Plutarch, matched Antony in drink, in dice, and in the hunt. This is all relatively normal for Roman or Roman period descriptions of Hellenistic kingship, and it goes back to stories of Alexander the Great's excess. But there's the point. This is kingship. Cleopatra was a queen and one who had firmly secured her own possession of the throne by her own hand, who maintained an independence of will and action even as she gathered powerful allies in Caesar and Antony. Roman sensibilities were often offended enough by the lavish nature of Hellenistic monarchy when held by men, and here, in the hands of a woman, the same actions were just simply unacceptable. So among the most legendary tales of Cleopatra's extravagance is that of a legendary banquet where Cleopatra bet Mark Antony that she could host the most expensive dinner in history. And the queen hoped to impress Antony and of course the Roman Empire he represented with the extent of Egypt's wealth. So during this lavish banquet, she apparently removed this gigantic pearl from a pair of earrings she was wearing, dissolved it in a goblet of wine or vinegar, and then drank it. And astonished, Antony declined his dinner, which was the matching pearl to the pair of earrings, and admitted that she had won the bet. So this famous story of Cleopatra's pearls is told by ancient writer Pliny the Elder, and Pliny estimates that those two pearls were worth roughly $30 million dollars in today's money. Just a touch extravagant, the world's most expensive cocktail. So stories such as these, they've traveled down through millennia and they arrive to the Middle Ages. Now in the Middle Ages, there was this archetype created in art and literature called the Luxuria. So the Luxuria was the embodiment of extravagant lust, unbridled hedonism in the material. And Luxuria was often portrayed as a naked woman surrounded by jewels, in particular pearls, which were incredibly rare and sought after. So because of this famed story of Cleopatra drinking a 50 million dollar pearl for dinner, she starts to become represented as the epitome of this archetype of the luxuria. And so we're still not talking sex directly. We're talking sinful pleasure for the material, for riches. And then slowly, slowly but surely, 
we begin to see people take liberties with this idea of Cleopatra's hedonism. And they begin to make this assumption of, well, if she was that sinfully hungry for wealth and power, surely she must have been rampant and sexually hedonistic as well. And this is where the orgies, the addiction to fellatio, the sleeping with a hundred men in a night all start to appear. So sometime in the late 1500s, a series of letters written between Cleopatra, Mark Antony, and Serenus, the physician, appear that were supposedly found at the undiscovered tomb of Antony and Cleopatra. Despite being legitimately used as historical artifact until well into the 19th century. These so-called Serenian letters are definitely forged. They're definitely fake and they are completely historically inaccurate, but they're now believed to have been written by a Swiss scholar in the 16th century. But just like the ancient Roman propaganda, because of their scandalous content, they blew up and became popular. And then the gossip spreads and then it just can't be undone. Then in 1607, our pal William Shakespeare writes his infamous play, Antony and Cleopatra, which is where we begin to see more outright statements made about her sexual depravity. For those that aren't massive theater nerds, Cleopatra is notoriously one of the most difficult characters to play in all of Shakespeare. She's deeply erotic, charismatic, theatrical, very volatile and temperamental. She basically seduces every man she meets um, and this leads her to be considered both an enchantress, a witch and a whore. She's an emblem of oriental decadence and she's contrasted to the puritanical Christian-like Romans in the play, especially Caesar and Octavia. And it's her drawing Antony into her net that brings about his downfall as he kind of falls under her influence and thus giving Caesar an excuse to cast Antony as a traitor to Roman principles. So there's definitely a bit of a moral undertone here to this play. You can all blame Shakespeare for making Cleopatra a whore. He was trying to make a political point of otherness. He was trying to suggest that, you know, purity, Christendom, English sentimentality, those things were all sacred and, you know, exotic otherness, being different, being independent in thought, excess and political rebellion were no good and made you turn into a little slut that winds up dead. That's the moral of Antony and Cleopatra. Thanks, Shakespeare. Um, on the topic of Shakespeare, I'm guessing a few of you may have picked up on this earlier, but guess where he got the idea for the ending of Romeo and Juliet from? It was of course, a direct rip from the history books of Antony and Cleopatra. You've got the escape plan gone wrong that leads Romeo believing his love Juliet has committed suicide. Then he kills himself with Juliet realizing the plan has gone horribly wrong. She decides to end her own life as well. Doesn't seem so original now, does it, Shakespeare? There are so many more examples between the 1600s right through to the 19th century that bounce around these really salacious depictions of Cleopatra. Gautier's Nuit de Cleopatre is one, as well as George Bernard Shaw's play Caesar and Cleopatra. But of course, without a doubt, the most influential contemporary reference we have of Pharaoh and Queen Cleopatra today is definitely the 1960s film Cleopatra by Joseph Mankiewicz starring Richard Burton, Rex Harrison and Elizabeth Taylor. This film is epic. It is epic for a million reasons and whether conscious or not, if you're under the age of about 80 right now, this film has without a doubt shaped not just your opinion and historical understanding of Cleopatra, but also your opinions of feminine beauty, of wealth, of extravagance and hedonism. Even if you've never seen the film, this film has influenced the way that you live. So why is that? For so many reasons, I'll roll off a few for you right now. So firstly, in a strange kind of life imitating art, imitating life kind of way, Cleopatra the film was so lavish and over the top and insanely expensive at the time it broke the record for being the most expensive movie ever made by a long shot. 
In the same way that Queen Cleopatra drank her multi-million dollar pearl earring in hopes of claiming the riches of Rome, Mankiewicz spent millions making this movie in the hopes it would be considered one of cinema's greatest masterpieces. So his original budget for the film was $2 million. And we're talking $2 million in like 1950s money. So does anyone want to guess how much he went over budget? Guys, relax. It wasn't even that much, okay? He only went $42 million over budget. So calm down. Just $42 million over. It's nothing. It's nothing. Ugh, can you imagine being in that production meeting? <laughs> oh, you'd just be like, ugh. Fuck. Oh God, I just can't. Yeah, I can't even imagine. This film came so, so close to completely bankrupting 20th Century Fox. It took years to film. They kept stopping production. Fox had to shut down a number of other productions to pour money assigned to those films into Cleopatra, including the Marilyn Monroe film, Something's Gotta Give. There's a book called Marilyn, a biography by Norman Mailer. In this book, he actually puts some of the blame for Monroe's suicide on the studio's halting production on her movie. Cleopatra, the film, it just took over Hollywood. Elizabeth Taylor was also the first ever person in cinema history to have been paid more than $1 million for a film. Another thing I want to talk about quickly is the fashion in this film and the effects it had on pop culture. So prior to this film, absolutely nothing had been seen like it. The budget for costume was the highest for any film before it. Elizabeth Taylor was permitted a record-breaking costume budget of nearly $195,000. She appears in 65 extravagant outfits throughout the film. It's honestly just worth watching it for the costumes alone. They're so stunning. In 1961, during filming, reporters from Vogue attended the movie set in Italy and wrote about the innovation of the fashion and style encapsulated in costume designer Rini Conley's work. So this article set off a chain of events that completely changed global fashion and steered the 1960s into that iconic silhouettes of like low-cut figure-hugging dresses, maxi styles, caftans, and mod shape. However, it has also kind of permanently tainted the historical perception of clothing during the reign of Cleopatra. When we think of Cleopatra, we think of Elizabeth Taylor in these costumes, and these costumes were not at all historically accurate. They were designed to be seductive and beautiful and feminine for the 1960s. Another little fun fact about this film, and possibly one of my favorite things about this film, is that we can more or less single-handedly attribute today's love of cat-winged eyeliner to this film and to Elizabeth Taylor. While the use of coal eyeliner and eye makeup has been used for centuries and millennia to accentuate the face and the eyes, it wasn't considered commercially popular in the West at all all until this film. So Elizabeth Taylor actually did all the eyeliner herself and she would spend hours in between takes and set up practicing new styles and shapes for her character of Cleopatra. So when we see that really heavy, angular, sharp, mod-shaped eyeliner and the cut crease shadow that we're all obsessed with today and that you see all throughout the 60s in editorial and fashion and film, it all began here on set in 1960 with Elizabeth Taylor and with Cleopatra. And what's sexier than a perfect winged cat eye? Literally nothing. They take so long to do. I don't know about you, but I've spent a lifetime trying to perfect my cat eye and I still have a long way to go. So as well as this hugely excessive use of finance, the private lives of the leading actors caused a huge stir during production. Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, who were playing Queen Cleopatra and Mark Antony, shocked the public when the pair, who were both married at the time, began having a very public on-screen affair. In the book called Furious Love, it says... In their first deep kiss on set in Cleopatra's boudoir, Burton found himself caught up, almost drugged in the presence of Elizabeth Taylor. They repeated the scene several times. 
their kiss lasting longer with each take. Finally, Mankiewicz shouted, print it. But the actors continued in the scene. Would you two mind if I say cut? He asked again. And then finally, guys, does it interest you that it's time for lunch? Later that day, Burton dragged Taylor's chair next to his, and it would remain there for the next 13 years. Apparently, at one point, Taylor's fourth husband, the singer Eddie Fisher, called his own home only for Burton to answer the phone. What are you doing in my house? He asked. What do you think I'm doing? Burton answered. I'm fucking your wife. Once again, we have history repeating. We have this iconic love affair between two of society's most notorious characters kind of mirrored into one another, Antony and Cleopatra and Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. That gossip was infectious and people loved to hate Elizabeth Taylor just as the Romans loved to hate Queen Cleopatra. Taylor, like her on-screen character, was a seductress. She was intoxicatingly beautiful. She was a money grabber, a hedonist. She was the luxuria. She was the home wrecker. And so the two of them have kind of become forever intertwined as one and the same. Now, either and both of these powerful women are seen to be the embodiment of the original femme fatale. And to kind of wrap it up, I guess what I'm saying is that what we essentially have is history becoming propaganda, becoming rumor, becoming politically motivated fable, becoming salacious gossip over the span of more than 2000 years. You have, of course, people, whether educated or not, choosing to believe these sexy stories as fact. And much like my 10-year-old self reading When We Were Gods and daydreaming over the words Cleopatra and Antony were saying to one another without checking myself into reality and going, you know, hang on, how the fuck would anyone know what was said between these two in their private moments? We, we, we don't know. We'll never know. And moments like that in history can only ever be truly conjecture. But... We love the fantasy. We love the eroticism. We love the explosive opulence. We, (laughs) you and me, we are the problem. We are the dirty little kittens that can't get enough of stories about orgies and about vibrators made out of live bees. It's you and it's 100% me. It's all our fault and I fucking love it and I'll never change. And in my opinion... It doesn't make a difference if Cleopatra VII was a pious queen who only had two sexual partners in her entire life, or if she was a hedonistic sex glutton who slept with thousands of people. It makes no difference. She was a badass. She was crazy intelligent. She was a successful leader. Her accomplishments and stories have made it into society's conversations for thousands of years, and we continue to draw on her for inspiration. So cheers to you, Cleopatra. What a woman. Thank you, everyone, for going on this ride with me. She she wasn't a quick one, was she? The research on this nearly killed me, not going to lie. I think about 20 espressos were harmed in the making of this episode. Let me know what you thought. As always, message me on Instagram and Facebook or email me at controversypodcast at gmail.com. That is C-N-T-R-O-V-E-R-S-Y podcast at gmail.com. I hope you have a wonderful week. Be kind to one another. Pay for your porn. Don't fake your orgasms. And I will see you next Tuesday. <laughs>